The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. All right, James 3. Now, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Josh preached a message that I think is one of my favorite messages he's ever done. This, this theme of this message is going to resonate with me forever. This idea of kingdom down, living kingdom down, pulling kingdom realities down instead of living culture up, instead of just kind of like uh, transforming or trans... Um, molding into the culture around us. And he talked about how as dual citizens, as citizens of both heaven and earth, that it's got to be our priority, that we are keeping our eyes, our gaze on things above. We have to keep our eyes set on Jesus and we have to keep our eyes set on who we are in Christ so that who we are in Christ in heavenly places, that it matches up with who we are on this earth. Otherwise, we're gonna be living in a perpetual identity crisis and that's not a good place to live. And as I've been thinking about that truth, I think one of the best ways that we can discover the kind of person that we are going to be in heaven, that we are currently in Christ, the best way we can, we can um, understand what that looks like is to look at Jesus, the model dual citizen. I mean, he walked this earth for 33 years and he gave us a perfect picture of what it looks like to pull kingdom down instead of living culture up. And, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but this is one of my favorite scriptures. It really is. I know I say that a lot, but this really is one of my favorite scriptures. It's in Romans 8, and it talks about how it's our destiny to be transformed into his image. Look at this, Romans 8, 29. He also destined from the beginning, foreordaining them to be molded into the image of his son and share inwardly his likeness. So it's our destiny to be a dual citizen like Jesus was a dual citizen, to act like him, to think like him, to talk like him, to serve like him, to move through this earth like he moved through this earth. And it was no surprise to people when they encountered Jesus that, that he, was, he was not here just to live like everybody else. People could tell that he was not from around these parts. He was constantly upsetting the world. He was constantly flipping the script. And if it's our destiny to be like him, then it's our destiny to constantly be upsetting the world in the best possible ways. Amen? Amen. So it should be obvious to those around us that we are dual citizens. It reminds me of this movie that came out a couple years ago starring Brad Pitt, Christoph Waltz, set in uh, World War II times. And there is a British spy and he's at this bar and he is um, acting as if he's a German soldier. He's trying to gather some intel and um, everything's going great. Like he's nervous because if they realize that he is, he is not actually a German spy, things aren't going to, uh, aren't going to end well. So things are going great. Um, he orders a, another round of, of, of drinks. He asks for three glasses of whiskey. He orders it in German, three glasses of whiskey, says it in perfect German. But when he holds up three like this, those German soldiers know that he is not who he says he is because if he was a true German citizen, he would have ordered three glasses of whiskey like this. 
one, two, three. Just that little subtle thing and they were able to spot him as an imposter and it did not end well. Um, so there are certain things that people do that, that are telltale signs where we're from, that we're not from around these parts, that we're from somewhere else. Uh, if you were to go to the UK, uh, people are gonna be able to spot you as an American citizen pretty easily. If you eat pizza with your hands, kind of a dead giveaway. If you, when you're crossing the street and you, and you, you look the wrong direction, it's a, it's a dead giveaway because they drive on the other side of the road. If you talk loudly, louder than everybody else there, dead giveaway. Another thing I guess that we do that they don't do is like a constant um, need for refills at a restaurant on our drinks. They're going to know that you are an American. So there's some, se- some telltale signs that let people know where your citizenship is from, okay? But what about being a citizen of heaven? What are some telltale things, dead giveaways that we're citizens of heaven? I think um, that these are some that we think are those giveaways. We've got a church sticker on our car. So obviously, you know, we wear church merch at least once a week. We check in on Facebook and let people know that we're here on Sundays. We retweet Mike Todd and Stephen Furtick and Priscilla Schreier and Joyce Meyer. So obviously, like we're citizens of heaven, right? We Instagram our our quiet times. We have children named Isaac and Rebecca and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. We have uh, some churchy word or scripture tattooed on our bicep in Hebrew. So obviously we're a citizen of heaven. We, We publicly announce all forms of fasting, letting people know we are a citizen of heaven. Around the holidays, it's easy to spot us. We've got a he is risen sign in our front yard or we're Instagramming our friends giving with our church small group or we're uh, boycotting Starbucks for three whole days because we don't like that they didn't put the word Christ on their holiday cups. These are ways that we think people can tell that we are a citizen of heaven, but that is not the way this works. I mean, those aren't bad things, I guess. I think, I think some of them are, 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 are not okay, but, but They're not bad things, but they're not the actual way that people can tell we really are who we say we are. Uh, James tells us how we can do this. James 3, starting in verse 14. Now, I'm going to give you 11 verses. And some of you from some churches are like, 11 verses? Like that is, that's a lot of word. But we're at church, right? And I think you can handle 11 verses. So stick with me. Lean in. Look at the screens. Okay, you guys ready for this? You're going to track with me all 11 verses? Who's going to track with me? All right, here we go. Starting in verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, if you slap a bumper sticker on the back of your car, if you wear that new song, church shirt, what good is it if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions. Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day and stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now some may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your 
faith if you don't have good deeds. I will show you my, my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Thanks for making it so plain, James. Um, can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown right uh, to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road, just as the body is dead without breath. So faith is dead without good works. So James makes it pretty clear the best way that we can identify ourselves as true citizens of heaven is by our good deeds, by our good deeds. Now, it's important to know here um, that uh, your good deeds or your, your works, they're not what saves you. We are only saved by Christ and in Christ alone. But what happens is when we do get saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, then our good deeds, they're a result of that or a byproduct of that. Spurgeon says good works are not the root of faith, but they are its fruit. So kind of think of it like an apple tree. Where is the life in the apple tree? It's in the roots. It's in the stuff underneath the bark. The, the life of that apple tree is not in the fruit. It's not in the apples. But if the apple tree is alive and the roots are healthy, then what are you going to see? You're going to see apples. So if you are alive in Christ, that part of you that can't be seen, that you really have been born again, that you really do have a brand new perfect spirit, that part of you can't be seen. But if it's alive and you are walking in it, then guess what you'll have? You'll have apples. You'll have fruit. You will have good deeds. You will produce actions. And these will be telltale signs that you are not only a citizen of the earth, but that you are a citizen in heaven. And there's one attitude, one attitude that should be thread through every one of these actions, through every one of our good deeds, one attitude that, that people should taste every time they take a bite of one of the apples that's coming out of our lives, and that is the attitude of generosity. That's what we're talking about this morning, generosity. If you're taking notes, write this down. True citizens of heaven are marked by generosity. Think about the examples that James gives us. Uh, giving a brother or sister who has no food or clothing something to eat and drink, that's generosity. Abraham offering his one and only promised son to, to God on the altar, that's generosity. Rahab offering the spies a place to hide and hospitality, that is generosity. So we're going to talk about generosity. And I know for the most part, I'm preaching to the choir here because New Song people are a very generous people. But I believe that as we understand this kingdom down and culture up, that God is calling us to go deeper. Who's here for that this morning? If you're here for it, say, I am here for it. I'm here for it. Good. Okay. So I'm going to talk about some misconceptions about generosity because I think there are some that float around in the church world. And if we don't understand these misconceptions, then we're going to stunt our generosity 
growth. Nobody wants to stunt your growth, right? We want to keep growing. So we need to understand these misconceptions. I have four of them for you this morning. The first one is uh, generosity misconception. Number one, tithing to your local church is generous. Tithing to your local church is generous. This is, um, this is a misconception because tithing to your local church is not generosity. It is baseline obedience. Um, if you're new to the church and you don't understand what tithing is, it is 10% of the first per portion of your income, okay? So let's say you make $500 a week before taxes, then your tithe would be $50. If you make $50,000 a week before taxes, then your tithe would be $5,000. And we're told in Malachi to bring the tithe to the storehouse, to the local church, the place where you're being fed. And um, this isn't something that's passed away. Jesus talked about it in the New Testament in red letter. He said, we should not neglect to bring the tithe. Matthew 23, 23, if you want to look it up later. Now, if you aren't tithing, this is by no means a tithing message, but let me just take a second here to encourage you to start tithing. Like, just go for it and see what happens. Next paycheck, take out that first 10%, bring your check, set it up online, and just see what happens. I can tell you from experience, I have been tithing for 19 years, longer than some of you in this room have been alive, which means I'm getting old and that's weird, but I've been tithing for 19 years. I remember getting my first paycheck from the Gap at Eastland Mall, which no longer exists anymore, and taking that check down to BOK and the the first thing I did was get out my little checkbook and I felt like such a grown-up and wrote my little tithe check to church on the move and dropped it in the basket and I've been tithing since that moment as a 16-year-old. Um, so I know from experience that when you give that 10% that God will bless the 90% and he will always take care of you. So if you're not tithing, uh, begin to do it. It really is. It's a beautiful exercise of trust. And it's something so tangible for you where you can say, I do put you first in all areas of my life. So tithing is a good, good thing. We should all be tithing, but tithing is not generosity. And this is important for us to understand because I think sometimes we as Christians who are tithers, what happens is we put that check in the bucket or we set up our biweekly giving online and we think, I'm generous, like done and done, kind of wipe our hands or, 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 or knock off the dirt from our hands. We're done. Like that's our generous act for that pay period. And this is an easy misconception to believe, especially when we hear statistics like only uh, the, the, the average American only gives 2% of their income to the church. So if you're a tither and you're giving that full 10%, you're like, yeah, I am super generous. But that's not the case um, because giving someone something that technically already belongs to them is not generosity. Okay, so track with me. I'm going to, uh, I, I go to the mall after church and I walk into Foot Locker. Is Foot Locker still a thing? Okay, I walk into Foot Locker and, and I don't steal a pair of shoes. That's not generosity. Okay, I go to Sephora and, and I don't steal a tube of lip, lipstick. That's, that's not generosity. I go to the Apple store and I don't swipe an iPhone. That's not generosity. I can't say that because I'm going to on cue later and not going to steal a freezy cue that I've done my generous act for that pay period. Okay, listen, when you tithe, you're not robbing from God. And, and not robbing does not equate to generosity. 
Malachi 3.8 says, will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And your tithes and contributions. So when you're tithed, you're not being generous. You're just not robbing God. And again, that's great. Don't want to rob God, but we can't say that's generosity, that I'm generous simply because I tithe. Now, giving over and above your tithe, that's considered generosity. You know, if you paid your tithe, but you also have a compassion child that you support each month, that's generosity. If you pay your tithe, but you checked off some things on your child's teacher's Amazon wish list, that's generosity. If you pay your tithe, but you gave towards the 33B construction payoff, which we paid this week, uh, that's generosity. That's generosity. And I want to, I want to let you know, like, this is important. I think for you to know that your pastors are generous. I don't tell you this to brag, but I think you should know that we practice being generous with our finances. I got out our tax return and last year we gave 29% of our income. So 10% not robbing God, 19% generosity. And, and, and like I said, I, I, I just want you to know that, that we are practicing this. We're practicing generosity in our financing. And it's so easy to do because God's been so generous with us. He has over and over again pulled us out of so many pits. He's been so generous with us that we want to be generous. There will never be a year that comes and goes that we did not give more than 10% when it comes to our finances. Misconception number two. You have to be wealthy to be generous. Mark 12, verse 41 through 44. Look at the story with me on the screen. And just, can you just um, appreciate the awkwardness of this moment and how Jesus is not afraid of awkward moments? Okay, Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and he watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Oh, I love Jesus. Uh, Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called the disciples. Guys, come here. He says, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. So she puts in two small coins and Jesus says, she's given more than everybody else. Their big, large gifts combined. How does he figure that? Look at the next part. He says, for they gave a tiny, someone say tiny. They gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything that she had to live on. Now this is kingdom math right here. The rich gave these large dollar amounts, but here's the catch. It wasn't sacrificial in comparison with their surplus. It wasn't sacrificial in comparison with their surplus. She gave a small dollar amount, but it was all she had to live on. And Jesus said, this is the best gift of all. Write this truth down this morning. The value of the gift is determined by what it cost the giver. It's kind of like uh, the cry of David in 2 Samuel 2. He says, I will not give that which cost me nothing. That has to be the cry of our hearts as citizens of heaven. I will not give. I will not give. I will not give what cost me nothing. I will not give um, where a sacrifice, where I don't have to make a sacrifice. I want to sacrifice. I will give it everything that I have in worship. I will give everything I have as I serve in Boomtown. I will give everything I have. I will not give what cost me nothing. When we gave that 29% last year, 
it cost me something. It cost me a kitchen remodel and it cost me a trip to Disney, but it was so much, there was so much joy in giving because it was like I could say, listen, you are more important to me than this. You've put it on my heart to give. This is my kitchen money, right? This is, this is, I'm saving this for this, but you've put it on my heart. And so I'm going to give this to you. It was such a joy because it cost me something. And, and, and it's such a little thing in comparison to what God has done for me. But when we give something that costs something, it does something in our lives. True citizens are marked by generosity. I also love this story because it upsets this mindset of I'll be generous when I have more. I think a lot of people have the heart to be generous, but they just think I, I just got to, I just got to wait till I get paid more. Listen, if you're waiting for more to be generous, you will forever be waiting to be generous. Start now. Misconception number three, stewardship is greater than generosity. Generosity misconception number three, stewardship is greater than generosity. In John chapter 12, um, six days before the Passover celebration, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, Lazarus uh, the man he'd raised from the dead, and a dinner was prepared in Jesus's honor. Like, think about how special this occasion was. Like, we throw dinner um, in honor of people, you know, like, yay, you turned 30, we're gonna honor you. Yay, you turned 40. Yay, you graduated from college. Yay, you graduated from pre-K, let's honor honor you, but this is, yay, you raised somebody from the dead. So we're going to honor you. So this was a big, special, important dinner. It says Martha served and Lazarus was among those who ate because he wasn't dead anymore. Uh, then Mary took a 12 ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard and she anointed Jesus's feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. When your hair makes a really great prop on Sunday morning, she wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with fragrance. Now we know this was a generous act, an extravagant act of worship. She used this costly oil, 12 ounces. So like an Ozarka bottle minus a couple of sips, 12 ounces, and apparently this perfume was so expensive, it was worth one man's uh, yearly salary. So in today's terms, according to Google, the average yearly salary of a dude is $53,500. So it was like this little 12-ounce bottle of perfume worth $53,000, and she poured it all out on Jesus' feet. Now, the disciples were there. They're watching this. I, I believe that some of them were there, like, letting that fragrance rise up into their nostrils. And this core memory is being formed of that time when words were not enough and this extravagant gift of generosity. And, and, but some of them are not quietly watching, like just soaking in the, moment, in the moment. Some of them are watching and just quietly judging, judging this woman for being a bad steward. And, and one of them, it bothered him so much, he could not remain quiet. He had to ruin this moment with his mouth. Okay, who do you think that disciple was? Any guesses? Let's see. John 12, four through eight. 
But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold in the money given to the poor. Like way to ruin the moment, Judas. And then I love this dig that John makes here. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Now, Jesus, we see he disagrees with Judas's line of thinking here, that this stewardship mentality. He says, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Okay, so this generosity upset Judas because he felt it was bad stewardship. It was poor money management. It was carelessness. Doesn't anybody else see? Like we could have done this with that. We could have fed the poor. We could have built an orphanage with that $53,000. Listen, you've probably experienced this. If you're a generous person, you've probably upset some people. You're going to give how much? You're going to give $30,000 to help sex trafficking victims? Don't you know you could pay off your student loans with that? Don't you know you could do a down payment on a house with that? You're going to give them $100 for a date night? Girl, that is your entertainment money. That is your gas money. That is your grocery money. Maybe you don't hear it from people in your lives, but perhaps the enemy comes and, 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 and says those things to you when you know that God's put it on your heart. Now, I'm not saying that stewardship is not important. We want to be good stewards. We want to manage our money well, because if we don't, we'll never have anything to give away. But what I am saying is that a truly generous person, they don't filter their generosity through the question, is this the most sensible thing I could do with this resource? Misconception number four, money is the currency of generosity. Now, I know I've talked a lot about money, and money is closely linked to generosity, um, but if we define generosity as giving money alone, then that's a mistake, because every citizen of heaven, they have something to give and to give away generously. One of the most generous people I know is my six-year-old, Sonny, and Sonny ain't got no money. <laughs> but she's generous with her words, with her smile, with her encouragement. So it doesn't have to do only with money. Jesus was our model dual citizen. And every move that he made was cloaked in generosity. Try to find a story where you don't see generosity. And when Jesus walked the earth, it is hard to do. And remember, if we want to understand who we are in heaven so that we can walk in that, then we need to study the life of Jesus. Jesus was generous with his touch when other people would not um, come close to a leper permanently, forever, social distance. He went and he laid his hands on them. Most of his healing miracles involved touch. He would let the little children come to him and hold them in his arms. He let John lean against his chest. It's almost as if Jesus knew 2,000 years ago about the restorative effects of touch before scientists did. He was, uh, he was generous with his touch. We have to be generous with our touch. You know, when people are sick, when they're hurting, lay your hands on them. If, if they say it's okay, can I lay my, my hands on you and pray for you? We need to hug our kids and our spouse. We need to shake hands. In this world that's saying, don't touch, everybody stay apart, don't get close to one another. Science also says that hugs boost our immune system. So 
science, I, I don't know. I just know that Jesus was generous with his touch. So be generous with your touch. He was generous with his words, telling Peter, you're the rock upon which I'm going to build my church, telling the centurion, I haven't seen faith like yours in all of Israel. He was generous with his reputation, inviting notorious sinners like Zacchaeus to come and eat with him. He was generous with his hospitality, the the water into wine, the loaves and the fishes, uh, fixing dinner for the disciples on several occasions. He was generous with his mercy, not throwing stones at the woman caught in adultery. He was generous with his position, sharing his sonship and his seat with us. He was generous with his patience. He was generous with his time. He was generous with his kindness. He was generous with his life to the point of death. Jesus lived to give. You may not have a dollar to your name right now, But because he's been so generous with us, we have something to give and to give generously. I'm telling you, there are ways that you can be generous every single day that will not show up on your bank statement. Okay, so if true citizens of heaven, if they're marked by generosity, then why do we struggle with being generous? Well, if you remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor Josh talked about how we have to kill some things off. We got to put some things to death. We also have to put some things on. Go to Colossians 3. You probably have some notes in your Bible if you were here a couple weeks ago because he taught from this text. It tells us about things we have to put to death. And we talked about some of those things. But I want you to notice what else is in this list of things that we need to kill off. It says, put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Those are the ones that we major on, right? But then it says, don't be greedy. Somebody say, don't be greedy. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this earth. We're talking about living kingdom down, right? Instead of living culture up. Well, let me just remind you that the culture that we live in here on earth is a very greedy culture. It's you do you. It is treat yourself. It is uh, look out for number one. The culture of our world says worship the temporal things when that is in direct opposition to what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. So what happens if we're not intentional to kill off the spirit of greed is we're greedy with our lives, with our time, with our touch, with, with, our, with our finances, with our mercy. We become greedy people. So how do we kill greed? Well, I will answer that question by posing another question to you. How do you kill anything? You don't feed it and you don't water it. Ask the plants at my house, okay? <laughs> don't feed it, don't water it. It's going to die. The inside plants. Josh's plants are another thing outside. He, he feeds them and waters them. But my inside plants, not so good. Um, so if we, if we want to kill greed, we have to figure out what's sourcing it so that we can stop feeding it, so that we can stop watering it so that it dies. So as we close, I've got a couple of behaviors that we'll see in greedy people. We're going to talk about those behaviors, but then we're also going to look to try to discover what the root of that behavior is. Because if we just look at the behavior and you just try to modify your behavior, but you don't cut it off at the source, what's going to happen is in a couple of weeks, that behavior is going to come right back. Okay, so the first behavior that we see is greed be shopping. Like we be shopping, 
but greed be shopping. Like another level of shopping. You know those people who their closets are full and they have so many shoes and purses and they have to have the latest tech and the nicest cars and the biggest TV. Their identity is found very much in the things that they have. It's not that they're just shopping like for groceries or for new clothes uh, when new seasons come around or whatever, but they are shopping um, and they're never satisfied with their purchases. And they think that those shoes are gonna fill that void, but they don't, so then they have to go buy more and more and more stuff. And, and that's the root, or, or that's, the, that's the behavior. That's what we see is just this, this love for things, gotta have things. But the root of that is idolatry mixed in with a little bit of gluttony. Idolatry and gluttony. And it's when we start to look to these things, these inanimate objects, as a source of satisfaction. Uh, this will give me self-worth. This will give me peace. This will give me joy. And it may for a second, but then when it, that wears off, then we got to go buy some more stuff. And that causes us to really become a, a very inwardly driven person. Like we're only looking inward, not looking outward. We're just looking to things and how to make ourselves happy. So the way that we starve that is the next time that you feel like going to Target to try to make yourself feel better, you're having a bad day or you're needing to feel whatever, try to fill this void and you, you got to go shopping to do it instead of doing it. Go and sit at the feet of Jesus. Just sit at his feet and remind yourself that he is the only one that can satisfy you. He designed you that way. He's the only one that's going to bring you that fulfillment. And just let him minister to you and give you that self-worth and give you that joy and give you whatever it is that you're looking for in those shopping trips, in those things. And you know what will happen is you will probably leave that moment so full because he is so good and he is more than enough for us. We'll leave that moment full and instead of needing to go buy something, we'll have this urge to give something. And that is the ultimate slap in the face to this greedy behavior. It's like a, a, just like a taking an axe to that root of idolatry. Another behavior that we see in people um, that, that it shows up is greed be hoarding. Greed be shopping, greed be hoarding. And, and I'm not talking about just like the hoarders that you see on TV, those extreme hoarders. Um, but we do know that our culture is a culture of hoarders. We saw that in March when there was no toilet paper or hand sanitizer or anything like that. We got, we're just looking out for us and our own interests. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't look out for his own interest. It says in Philippians that he did not cling to his equality with God. If anybody was to had anything worth clinging and hoarding away from everybody, it would be your equality with God. But he didn't cling to it. He generously opened up his hands and he gave. So the 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 behavior is hoarding. And we can't it's not that we just hoard items or money, but we can hoard our times or our time, our energy, our gift. It's kind of like um Gollum in the Lord of the Rings. He has that ring and he's like my precious. We see people do that with like, hey, can you help me move on Saturday? It's my weekend. My weekend is my precious. Hey, can you serve two services this Sunday? We're short a couple of all. It's my church service. That's my precious. Like we hoard things away. That's the behavior, but what's the root? The root is fear. 
that there's a fear somewhere there that you don't believe that God is, is capable of meeting all of your needs according to his riches and glory. You, you don't believe that um, he, the, the verse that says, I've been young and old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. So there's this fear in you. If I give, then God can't give back to me. But that's not the way he set the world up to work. When he set this world in motion, it's if you, if you sow, you'll reap. If you give, he'll give back to you. So we don't have to hoard. We, we, we don't have to keep things to ourselves. We can crush that behavior by really dealing with that fear. Where does that fear come from? Why do you think that you won't have enough. And then the last one is greed be ignoring. Greed be shopping, greed be hoarding, greed be ignoring. And we see this behavior on display in the story of the Good Samaritan. You know the story. There's a guy, he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets beaten, stripped, and left for dead. And there's a Levite and a priest that happen to pass by this guy. And uh, that's exactly what they do. They pass by, they ignore it. They go around this man. And I think uh, greedy people are really good at this behavior, at avoiding need, avoiding opportunities to be generous. Um, but what's the, what's the root of that? Why do we ignore people and problems? The root is pride. The Levite and the priest, they were consumed with pride what they had to do, where they had to go, the tasks that they needed to take care of, their work at the temple, their robe that they didn't want to get blood on, it was more valuable to them than this man's life. That's pride. Pride says my life has more value than your life. When we put our tasks over people, and this is the one that I struggle with. This is the one that I'm, Lord, help me. Holy Spirit, help me. Because I'm a very task-oriented person. We, but when we put our tasks over people and we say, I have places to go and, and I have people to see and I have things to do and that need was not on my to-do list today, when we pass around it, when we ignore it, when we hope that there's another good Samaritan following close behind that doesn't have as busy as a day as we do, um, our pride is showing and, and, and it's like a pride parade of a different nature. <laughs> some of us, some of us are celebrating Pride Month like every month, kind of waving our flag around and saying, I'm more important than you and my comfort and my time and my weekends and my to-do list. It's more important than you. So I'm just going to skirt around this need and hope that somebody else takes care of it. Lord, help us. So we have, to, we have to cut that off. And the best way to cut that off is just coming back to the basics that Romans eleven thirty six says, from him and through him and to him. Everything that we have comes from God and it's through him. And we're supposed to have it go back to him to give him glory. The important job that you have, the busy day that you have, your to-do list, your weekends, your time, whatever is precious to you, it's from him. So we got to get back to that place that we're nothing without you, God, that my life is no more valuable than anyone else's life. So we're going to kill greed off, but then we have to put something on. And these aren't the only behaviors and roots. I would encourage you to talk about this with your small group and with your spouse and with the Holy Spirit. Like, is there any greedy behavior in me? Show it to me and help me identify the root so I can starve it. But we can't just kill stuff. 
We got to put stuff on, right? Remember Colossians 3.10, we learned a couple weeks ago, we have to put on our new nature and be renewed as we learn to know our creator, the most generous person that has ever walked the earth. We put on our new nature and we renew our minds so we can know our creator and become like him. If you have a problem with generosity, then you have a problem understanding who you are in Christ. You have a problem understanding your new nature. You aren't taking the time to put your new nature on every day. And the culture is clouding up your ability to be generous. Listen, when you put on that new nature, you're reminding yourself that you are a king, that you are a part of a royal priesthood, that you have been adopted and you have been appointed and you have been anointed and that you are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. When you put on your new nature, your giving has to reflect your generosity. It has to reflect that new nature. It has to suit your new nature. I'll close with this. One day as the great conqueror, and remember, you're more than a conqueror. You're greater than this conqueror. As a great conqueror, Alexander the Great, as he was riding down the road, his envoy came upon a very poor beggar who was asking for a few small copper coins so that he could get something to eat. Now, Alexander the Great, he saw this beggar. He made his envoy stop so he could dress this man. And before anybody knew it, he was throwing gold coins, very valuable gold coins to this man. And apparently the guy just stood there shocked. And somebody in Alexander's envoy, one of his advisors, protested the king's generosity by saying, your majesty, a small handful of copper coins would have surely been more than enough for this beggar's humble need. And this is how Alexander responded. He says, yeah, a few copper coins would have suited this beggar's need, but gold coins suit Alexander's giving. A few copper coins might suit this need, but these gold coins, they suit my new nature. They suit who I am in Christ. They suit my citizenship in heaven. That's how we're called to live. True citizens of heaven, we're marked, we're stamped, we're set apart by our generosity. Would you stand to your feet this morning? This week, I wanna challenge you to a generosity challenge. I want you to do five generous things every day starting today. Just do it for a week and see what happens. Again, it doesn't have to be money. It could be mowing somebody's lawn. It could be bringing your, uh, your neighbor's trash bins up. It could be leaving a really generous note with encouraging words for your children and their notebook um, or, or their lunchbox. It, it could be giving somebody a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge that you have, but you're a little timid to give. Be generous with that word. Take somebody to lunch after church and pay for it. Give up a park spot at the grocery store. If there's one thing a Clorox wipes and there's two of you there, let the other person have the wipes. Five generous things all week long and, and watch this happen. Proverbs eleven twenty five. the generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. If you would bow your heads, 
close your eyes. Altar ministry team, I'm gonna invite you to go ahead and come up if you're on our altar ministry team. If you're here today and you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, they wanna pray with you. They can, they can tell you how to make that happen. If you wanna be a citizen of heaven, if you wanna to be able to put on that new nature, if you wanna make Jesus the Lord of your life, they wanna pray with you today. Um, also, if you have a prayer need of any kind, maybe you're, uh, you're dealing with some stress or anxiety or somebody in your family is sick or, or, or I don't know what it could be, but if you came in here with any need, any burden, anything that's got you uh, uh, feeling weighed down, these people want to pray with you, agree with you. There is power when we come together in prayer. Holy Spirit, I pray as we go back into this song that you would speak to our hearts. Show us where we have not been generous. Show us where we've been greedy. Help us to put on our new nature and help our generosity suit that new nature. Holy Spirit, speak to us. What are you saying to us? Show us action steps. Show us how to, to, to do what James said, to prove our faith and our belief in you by our good deeds. Holy Spirit, I also pray that you would draw every person in here today. Draw them with your kindness to the altar so that they can receive prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from New Song Church. If you have a prayer need or would like more information about New Song, you can email info at newsongpeople.com. If you would like to partner with New Song through giving, go to www.newsongpeople.com forward slash give. And if you want to stay connected to New Song, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for New Song People.